Welcome to the East Traumacast. This program was brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Now, on to the TraumaCast. Thank you to Humanetics for their generous and unrestricted grant for the Educational Resources Committee and support of the TraumaCast. All right, welcome back to another episode of TraumaCast. I have a great topic uh, that is near and dear to me, and I have a wonderful uh, group of surgeons uh, to talk about um, the outcomes after emergency general surgery and trauma care in incarcerated individuals. This was an East multi-center study. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, your research. I'm going to give our participants a chance to introduce themselves, and then we'll get started on the research. Hey, I'm Sarah Scarlett. I am one of the trauma and acute care surgeons at The Ohio State University. I'm Rebecca Main. I'm one of the trauma critical care surgeons at uh, Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. I'm Mary Kate Bryant. I am currently at the University of Washington and just started my advanced GI MIS fellowship. Hi, I'm Liz Dreesen. I'm a uh, trauma and critical care and emergency general surgeon faculty member at the University of North Carolina where my elective practice is primarily um, taking care of incarcerated people in the state prison system. Thank you. Welcome everybody to the TraumaCast. And Liz, would you mind, um, take us back. What brought this group of um, surgeons together to start working on this kind of project? I'm gonna um, blame Sarah Scarlett for this. Sarah <laughs> Scarlett was really the person that um, inspired me to start thinking about the ethical aspects of some of the practices at our hospital related to obtaining consent from patients and who were incarcerated. We noticed, because it was hard to miss, that the incarcerated people, even in the operating room, had two armed correctional officers and were often shackled. And we found this disturbing and started thinking much more about the care of incarcerated people. My experiences were informed by working at two large trauma centers in North Carolina, um, one that primarily took care of patients who were injured and um, required trauma evaluation and the other for more subspecialty surgical care. Um, but at both places, what I think we were really confronted by was um, sort of some of the glaring things that um, Liz is mentioning about operating on people in shackles, the presence of, of armed officers at the bedside, but also the, the lack of policy and guidance and often confusion regarded taking care of these patients and, and what policy actually said or, or did not say about that population. And so then what happened? So I think that the question that we really had coming together as a group is what type of care is provided to these patients and what are the outcomes of this care? And does the incarceration or does being justice involved actually contribute to difficulties in access to care or worse outcomes related to, to operations and surgery? But I will say that before we got as far as outcomes, we, we started, the first thing that Sarah and I wrote together was a piece on uh, shackling in the operating room and the ethics associated with that. Uh, that led us to explore a little more other, other policies related to the care of incarcerated people you know, at the University of North Carolina in particular. And now, Liz, would you talk about that just a bit? Because it, it does 
I don't know. It always confuses me. I walk into the operating room. This patient is intubated, paralyzed, and has an endotracheal tube in place. And yet, you know, right where I'm trying to put like my, my, my Velcro safety strap, there's a shackle to the bed. Like why, why, what's the thought process behind trying to shackle somebody in the operating room? I don't think there's really any thought behind it at all, actually. I think it's a um, reflex approach to the care of incarcerated people in a non-carceral setting. So they're in a regular OR in our operating room where there are many non-incarcerated patients. Um, they're viewed as a risk and a security, a security risk to all of us. And there's no thought on the part of the prison system and certainly not on the part of the correctional officers that being anesthetized and chemically paralyzed would mitigate that risk. Mary-Kate, uh, if I can turn to you, what got you interested in uh, studying this patient population? It was interesting because I had encountered these patients quite a bit um, in residency and in taking care of them and was always amazed at how, you know, different policies in the hospital dictated their care. Delving into the limitations of what their care was, was very interesting to me and, and honestly became a lot of the focus of my two years and, and turned into this East Multicenter study. And I think it all started with a literature review out there. And if you Google incarcerated in surgery in PubMed, you will find a lot of hernia research. And so there was not really anything out there. You know, it was when we started looking at this, no one had to really ask the question or maybe they had asked the question, but it was too, it was too much in terms of getting IRB approval and actually finding the data and who these patients were and any sort of database to answer any of these clinical questions. To, to step back a second, what, what words do I use? Like, I feel like I keep, I'm stumbling over, I keep saying jail, prison, incarcerated. And I, I feel like maybe there's even some like political correctness of how I should say this. Like, do I call it the prison system, the incarceration system? The, like, what, how do I even say it so I'm not saying it, it offensively? So I can tackle this one if that's okay. Um, so I, I think that, and I've been to a few talks um, actually hosted by incarcerated people in which the discussion of, of how people are discussed and what labels are attributed to these patients um, and how some can be interpreted as demeaning. I think generally speaking, um, like the, the wide terminology, so for people who are either in police custody, in jail, in state prison or in federal prison, or on probation, there's a term that people use called justice involved. And that's like a, the broadest population. For people who are in custody, um, the preferred term is incarcerated person. And terms like prisoner, convict, inmate, offender, those are all really um, viewed as derogatory by, by many of the people who are within the correctional system. I mean, we even call, I think, you know, if there's a grouping of prisoners in a hospital, ward, we call that the prison ward. You know, is there a better way that we could be labeling these areas, even colloquially in the hospital? Like, should we call it the incarceration ward or the incarceration unit? Would that be a, a better way to word it? Well, I think it's interesting too, um, because calling people prisoners or, or saying prison ward is really only half of the story. Like prison is a specific type, type of place where people are confined. Usually that's state or at state or at the federal level. And those are people who have actually been convicted of crimes and who are serving a sentence. 
But we also see a lot of people who are from jail. Those are people who are awaiting trial, who um, maybe are more temporarily in custody. And those are often at the, that's at the county level. And so it's very different in the way um, often, like we'll talk about this later, but like the problems that people present with can be very different um, in those settings. Yeah, yeah, I, I maybe it's just me. I, I definitely stumble over the, the language and the verbiage to use. Um, it's like innocent until proven guilty unless you're wearing, you know, a jumpsuit and you're shackled, right? It's difficult to kind of really give the same kind of visual uh, impression. Um, but sorry, I'm sorry, Becca, uh, Rebecca, back to you. The question I was going to ask you is that, um, you know, what has your, been your experience with just simply access to care for anybody who is, um, we'll, we'll say justice involved, so the entire system, you know, what if, if they, the, there's clearly going to be a difference between when I have an abdominal pain situation and when somebody who has to go through additional steps to get uh, care, what, what is your experience with that? I think I have a couple of um, answers to that. One is that I think part of what drew me into being interested in this and joining the ongoing work that Mary Kate and Sarah and Liz were doing um, was taking care of patients who I did feel uh, were delayed their initial care. And I think sadly, this still continues where you see patients who have acute cholecystitis, for example, and they come in and they've been complaining of abdominal pain for five days, six days, um, and perhaps they've been recently um, incarcerated in jail and somebody thinks that their abdominal pain is because they're withdrawing from opioids and they don't give it the same sort of credibility that somebody who is not in a similar situation would receive. And so I think uh, seeing those patients taking them to the operating room to, for open cholecystectomies that could have potentially been involved if they gotten or avoided if they had gotten care earlier um, as part of what drew me to this. But I think what we also learned in the multi-center trial is that there's a lot of differences in how people access care. You all have started to touch upon, one, it's a huge system. Two, surgery is a huge realm, right? Even just our surgeries, right? So we have trauma surgery and then we have emergency general surgery. Emergency general surgery really is just anything that's unplanned in general surgery. So some of that, like you described a moment ago, can really become a true emergency after five days. So some of it's a little bit slower. And then, you know, trauma, some of it's very fast, so penetrating is very fast. So how did you even start to tackle this problem and, and develop um, a framework for like a multi-center trial? Like walk me through how you put this together and, uh, and the approval process. Um, like what were your thoughts? What were your goals when you put this together? I think that might be a good place for Mary-Kate to sort of talk about some of the original study that we did at UNC and Wake Med that was informed at the sort of larger multi-center trial. So we, st we started looking at our own institution and an institution really um, close to us that were both level one trauma centers. And I think the first, you know, look at this was really to figure out how to identify these patients in doing IRBs. It is somewhat difficult to get IRB approval to do any study working with the incarcerated population. Before we could even tackle that, we had to come up with a plan of how we were going to identify these patients within our own system, um, even using an electronic medical record. Despite many iterations of, of different of tools to do that, we finally settled on payer data. Incarcerated persons are largely paid for by correctional facilities. It did not, however, capture a lot of the patients um, who were coming from jail facilities. And so that was a limitation of that. But within that 
realization that this was a good way to identify patients, we looked at our own data and we had around 650 patients between our two institutions um, over about five years. And we found a really, really low rate of trauma activation. It was very rare that these patients were coming in and getting immediate trauma care. It was more likely they were coming in with an injury and we were being consulted down the road, or we were not even being consulted at all as a trauma team, and they were being cared for by the emergency um, physicians themselves. And what we found was that most people were coming in from assault. Assault and self-injury were very, very common in this population. And we were seeing a lot of these patients back in our emergency department within 90 days after they went back to their correctional facility. Very few of them were actually being admitted. And we were seeing very, very few of them um, in follow-up within within 90 days. Uh, So this sort of led and was the pilot study to the East Multicenter study that we then proposed but it really was an an undertaking to try to figure out what we wanted to study and how we would get multiple centers to go through the process of getting IRB approval and contributing data over a a long enough time period that wasn't cumbersome, but was enough patients to be able to, to ask these questions on a national level. And I think the the experience of you know taking care of patients with other emergency general surgery conditions um, that may have delayed presentations was also part of the um, inspiration to include them in our population because I think we recognize as surgeons that that's um, potentially uh, a difference in the way that the care is delivered to the incarcerated population and to the general population, and so we wanted to have a sort of broader inclusion criteria because there was similar to the trauma patients, very limited data out there about what, what the actual surgical needs of these prisoners were and what surgeons should be paying attention to or, or aware of for this population. So before we get into your specific outcomes, could you help the um, listeners understand maybe some tips or tricks for actually applying for an East multi-center trial? Because you you were successful. So what um, things looking back, are you glad that you did? Maybe mistakes that you made or any advice you'd have for, uh, for young researchers who are, who are contemplating applying for a, a multi-center trial? Uh, I mean, I, Mary-Kate, you can help me with the application process. Uh, I feel like fortunately it was overall uh, fairly very straight. Rude. <laughs> Yeah, it was very, it was honestly very straightforward. And I think luckily we had already done a lot of the legwork with our own study um, that we kind of knew what we wanted to look at. We knew what our outcomes were going to be. We had done, you know, uh, thankfully there's not much of a literature review to do when there's no (laughs) literature out there, but we at least, we at least knew that, you know, we were going to be proposing something that um, potentially could help this population. Um, I think the biggest hurdle that we overcame with the committee, um, the multi-center study committee was that, you know, they were like, we don't know if people are going to sign up for this, if people are going to want to go through the process um, of IRB approval. And so I think, you know, they, um, were very helpful in getting the word out there. And I think that that's why we chose to go through this process um, and going through 
the East organization because it gave us a platform and it gave us um, some publicity for the study because it was really important to us that we captured patients from different institutions um, in multiple states because correctional healthcare is delivered very different in different states. And we really wanted to give a good picture since this was going to be the first national look at this of what these patients were presenting with and what their outcomes were. Um, so I, the application process itself was, was very straightforward. Um, we really did not encounter many difficulties other than getting patients through, getting institutions through the IRB process. We had um, over 20 institutions who wanted to participate and many of which either found the IRB process very daunting or even going through the IRB process were turned down by their IRB because of lack of understanding of how to conduct research in this population and um, lack of, of representatives on their IRB who were familiar with doing research in this population. I think it, it was some education on our part because we had experience at our own institution um, with trying to coach people with different wording that would make the IRB understand this was a low risk study and that the majority of the data that we were um, asking for was already documented in the medical record when these patients were being seen. And that was very important to us to keep this a low risk study so that um, we were doing our ethical duty in not putting what is a vulnerable population at risk, um, but also having some ease of, of performing the study for these institutions who may be less familiar with doing research on this population. I think, Mary Kate, you're bringing up a, a really good point that may have been, uh, perhaps without us realizing it, a uh, reason why we had fewer difficulties getting the study through, which is that we had dealt with the IRB issue at UNC. We had dealt with the uh, ability to identify incarcerated individuals, and we had some um, experience with that, and were able to present that um, as part of our proposal. And so I think that that, uh, especially in, as you're referencing all of these very challenging issues in studying this population, I think that uh, helped make it more um, convincing that this was a feasible study that we'd be able to do in different centers. And, you know, I think there's so many misconceptions about doing, conducting research on this population and such that like the protections that exist that have been put forth by things like the Belmont Report and the Common Rule for the protection of human research subjects actually sometimes can thwart research when people are unfamiliar. So incarcerated patients are often excluded from trials for this very reason, but the protections that are established by at the federal level by things like the Common Rule are specifically prohibiting experimentation on incarcerated patients and using incarcerated people as a sample of convenience, but research that actually um, looks into the effects of incarceration or the outcomes of incarceration is completely appropriate based on these um, restrictions. And I think that as um, Rebecca and Mary-Kate are alluding to, like knowing how to discuss this at the IRB level is, is so important. And still, despite that experience, 
we were not able to help several centers get through that IRB process, uh, which I think to me, it's, as Sarah was saying, is just so frustrating because we're trying to get the data that could potentially improve the care uh, of this population. And um, it was a, a really big challenge. Well, the good news is that the next researcher who does a lit review is gonna have your paper, <laughs> which is great. We have all the Hernia study information, but now we have this, right? So now, so you kind of paved the way and, and please give yourselves credit. 12 out of 20 centers um, getting uh, the IRB approved is, is an accomplishment in this field for sure. Um, so walk me through it. What did you study? What did you find? You know, what, what made this, you know, a, a worthy trial to launch and then a worthy trial to publish? So we collected data over two years from May 2019 to May 2021, and something very important in the world happened during that time. But within those two years, 12 centers gave us one year of continuous data from the incarcerated persons they were treating who presented to their emergency department with some emergency um, surgical condition, which included trauma. And with that, we're really interested in the epidemiology of what these patients were presenting with, what conditions were we treating as surgeons and as um, trauma uh, providers. And then also, you know, we were interested in what's happening to these patients, both during their hospital stay, and then in the immediate short-term follow-up. We were interested in, you know, did they follow up? Did they come back to the emergency department? Um, and then did they have any complications during their original admission? It ended up being around 950 patients from 12 institutions, 75% of which were academic medical institutions. And what we found was the majority of our cohort was relatively young, 90% male, and about half were black and 80% were from jail. This population had a lot of comorbidities including mental illness, which was present in around 30% of our population. Um, despite this, when we were seeing them in our hospital setting, relatively few of them were getting psychiatric consults. They were you know, less than 5% of the patients who presented with any sort of mental illness were actually seeing um, any sort of mental health provider during their hospital stay. Um, about 15% of these patients required surgery most frequently, this was laparotomy and facial fracture repair for patients who are presenting with trauma. For emergency general surgery conditions, infections were the most common presentation, and these frequently required incision and drainage surgeries. So definitely um, presenting with, with things like infections, biliary disease, and appendicitis were the most common reasons we saw patients for emergency general surgery conditions. One in six patients were treated in the ICU. So only having some uh, patients present with a high severity of, of illness. Uh, although complications were relatively rare in this population. And by complications, I mean just complications within their, their first initial hospital stay, which was on average less than five days. So pretty short um, time that they were within the care of, of these institutions outside of correctional health uh, institutions. We saw um, a relatively low number of patients come back with follow-up. Around 30% of patients actually had follow-up within 90 days. Uh, despite that, during that time, about 20% of patients would come back to the emergency department of the same institution. 
And what we know from our, our prior study where we had a little bit more granularity to our data is that there is definitely fragmentation of care with uh, incarcerated persons where they may be presenting to multiple different hospitals if they're in a large enough um, catchment area of several hospitals where we may not know if they go back with a complication or a readmission or another operation because they're being treated uh, and cared for at a different institution. Both emergency general surgery and trauma patients had pretty similar rates of uh, representing to the emergency department and readmission. And when we looked at predictors of readmission for trauma patients, the highest risk of this was in our self-injured population. And we know from prior data that as many as 48% of incarcerated people um, report self-injurious behavior. And this is compared to about 4% of the general population. So definitely a, a widespread problem in correctional healthcare and also much, much higher than the general population. And we also know that these patients who self-harm have really high recidivism rates. We can add a little bit more to which patients we actually saw, because I think that that's um, was sort of alluded to with some of the things we've said prior about the studies um, and how the trauma activations were happening in the original study. Um, but we only looked at patients who actually had a general surgery consult. Uh, and so there are probably a number of patients, and we're hoping some of our future work can look at this, who came to the emergency department and then were not actually escalated to even a trauma or general surgery consult. And I think that um, hard to study, but I think it's a very interesting question of do you see differences and how often uh, consulting services are involved in care for different populations and um, if we see any trends in less escalation or more escalation for a different group. Yeah, I was just thinking that might be an interesting thing, place to go next is looking at overactivation versus underactivation, right? Because all the injuries, all ICD-9 should fall on the trauma registries. It's whether or not there is an underactivation, even at the, what most centers would call like a trauma consult level, you know, if intuitively, if you think you're seeing that, if that's a place to study. And I think that's a, uh... It's one of the things we would love to see on a very large scale, but it highlights one of the biggest challenges with, a, with this population, which again, we've alluded to a little bit, which is identifying the patients. Most trauma registries, or I get to come across a trauma registry that has a field that identifies a person as, uh, come, as incarcerated when they present. And so, you know, the National Trauma Database, for example, does not have that. And so, you know, getting that large national sample is much harder. So knowing that, being re really able to compare those groups is, is a big challenge. Well, lucky news, um, I just revamped our, <laughs> our database that we collect for our registry and we've included that in there so that we can track it because we have so many patients. I was like, we really should track this. That's so, excellent. So more to come. I think um, it's so I ironic to me, as Rebecca's mentioning, that these are patients that are so supremely identifiable and, and because they're pushed down the hallway in shackles and right. they're wearing very distinct outfits. And they're actually in our own hospital, there are special waiting rooms that are identified as the um, waiting rooms for prisoners. I mean, they're, they're very easily identified in the real world, but they're completely hidden really in many, many national databases. So not only are they not identified in the NTDB, but they're, you know, the uh, cancer registries don't include whether the patients are incarcerated or not. So 
doing research on disparities associated with the treatment of this population is extremely difficult. I think a lot of work um, is actually being done and to try to circumvent this issue of these patients not being included in national registries with regard to data linkages, because some of our collaborators in North Carolina have actually um, compiled lists of people who have been recently released from prison and kind of linked these to more national or, or large databases and found some really interesting things. But I think that it, it points out that so many researchers are having to do these big workarounds to just study the population given all of the um, red tape that's often involved, um, perhaps related to misconceptions about protecting, protecting these people. And I'm curious, Liz, if you have any additional perspectives on sort of that longer term healthcare data uh, with your experience actually doing a lot of the care provision at, um, at the prison. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things, so I work with one other surgeon uh, at the prison hospital associated with North Carolina State Prison System. You know, the hospital was built in 2011 as a place that incarcerated people could get care without having to be sent out into the community. And honestly, it was built um, for truly financial reasons. It's very expensive to transport every sick um, person amongst the many incarcerated people in our state with two armed guards to community hospitals. And so that hospital has, has I think, led incarcerated people to have a little more access to care than they might have had otherwise. But one of the things that I've seen as a result of working in that hospital is that the patients are actually moved around the state quite a bit. When they're initially um, convicted, they'll go to one of the intake facilities and often spend a couple months there as they get sorted out into what their custody status is going to be. And, um, and then as they move either up to maximum security or down to minimum security, um, they can move to different prisons uh, for often for financial reasons, the, the prison system will shut down one prison and open another one. Um, so patients, will, people will be moved again. And there's really a lot of discontinuity of care. And people will start their cancer care when they're in one prison. They'll be then moved to a different prison. The, the prison does have an electronic medical record, but historically it has not been accessible to anybody outside the prison. Uh, largely when the patients are transported to a regular, to a non-carceral, non-prison hospital, they're not, they don't come with their electronic medical record or with any printed data at all. So it's, it's, I think the, the difficulty of taking care of people and really having of what has been going on with patients um, is very difficult. And it's often very, it's a low, many of the patients in this population have really low health literacy and they often are not able to communicate that much about what they've experienced in the past. And I think as we were making the, you know, the argument to a lot of um, persons for buy-in for, you know, our multi-center project and even projects at our own institution, you know, I think for the listeners, I think we have to look at correctional health as public health. The majority of these patients are going to be released back into their communities and they're going to bring you know, these healthcare problems back to their communities and the resources there. And so it's important that patients who are in a correctional um, facility are not only giving, getting equivalent access, but equivalent outcomes. And that, that means something different to the non-incarcerated patient 
but it, it's an important thing that we were very focused on and um, trying to understand what the outcomes are of this population. And I think sort of related to that, like it's important to point out that incarcerated people are the only people in America with a constitutional right to healthcare. And despite that guidance, um, there's little said about how to deliver the care, how to ensure the care is effective um, and how to afford this care. And I, I think it that always hit close to home and was one of the driving points of the study. And I think that like, just think it, why this is so important and thinking about like, there's so much data that suggests that incarceration contributes to racial health disparities in America. And then thinking about the fact that within our own literature and trauma um, and our interest and focus on health disparities, like this was such a, a blind spot. Can I ask um, just a couple potpourri questions I have and, and sparks from what you just said, Sarah. Um, what is the data or research out there on provider um, bias on um, an incarcerated patient? I can address that with help from Liz, um, because we actually looked at a lot of the qualitative data that is out there related to um, whether or not healthcare providers um, had bias that biases regarding these patients and how they kind of perceived treatment of these patients. And um, that actually is some work that we have done with an excellent um, student now resident collaborator, Shannon Gillespie at UNC. And, and she did a wonderful job of looking at um, this data like the outcomes data, it's quite scant. I think the interesting thing too is like a lot of the qualitative data, um, it's global data. Like it's, it, I would say there's few studies from the United States. So what it speaks to is that yes, like bias contributes or can influence care. And there's a lot of strongly held notions about who these patients are as people, and what they deserve or don't deserve. And then there's also notions of like the fear element for some providers and caring for these patients, you know, they um, and how that might influence care. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the what the literature shows is that, and there's a, more of it really related to nursing care of incarcerated mm -hmm. people than to physician care of incarcerated people that um, in many venues, nurses are afraid of, of the patients. Um, and in, but in other venues, I think nurses, it, there's, a, there's almost a, a sort of two-sided effect. Some nurses are very afraid of taking care of this patient population. And, and some nurses feel, I think as, as providers do too, judgmental of this patient population and concerned that they're getting care that they may or may not deserve. Um, on the flip side, there's very interesting palliative care literature from Australia. There's a, a fairly robust literature about the care of incarcerated people in Australia. And the palliative care folks really um, try to take an advocacy role in relation to these patients because they, but are thwarted. They, they feel like they wanna advocate for better palliative care, but they don't even know how to interact with the prison system and how to work you know, up the, the hierarchy of the prison medical authority in order to get more pain medicine for a patient or be able to have the patient's family come visit. So I think there really, there are, there are people who are upset about taking care of or disturbed by the crimes that they believe have been committed. And then there are people who are just disturbed that these patients are being um, treated differently in their hospitals. 
And I think also just varying perceptions about the autonomy or or restrictions to autonomy of these patients as it relates to decisions about their healthcare. And I think that those the palliative articles that you reference have just been some of the most striking ones that that I've read related to this topic about you know, people owing time to the state and therefore not being able to make decisions to do things such as um, choose comfort measures versus life-sustaining care or things like that. And I... On the flip side, I was wondering if, um, if maybe there is any research or your thoughts on surgeons be, being more likely to intervene on an incarcerated patient compared to a civilian um, in a good way. For example, um, if a civilian comes into the emergency department and they have an incarcerated inguinal hernia and it gets reduced, quite often we'll give them instructions, send them home and say follow up and we can just schedule the repair of your inguinal hernia or an umbilical hernia that's fat incarcerated, symptomatic, but we're gonna send you home, we'll, we'll schedule this. Um, sometimes we, I've, I find that we'll be more likely to operate on that index ER visit because I don't, I worry that if I send this person back into um, an incarcerated scenario and they have pain again, it, it might take longer before that pain is convincing enough to bring them back to the emergency department. And I don't know if it may be a bowel incarceration the next time around, if that makes sense. So I wonder if it can also be maybe a, a bias in a good way that we're more likely to intervene um, just out of a, almost in a protective nature to make sure they get the care that they might need. If, if maybe you had had that experience, Liz, um, you know, you work actually within the pr prison um, hospital, but if, if anyone had seen that, could have been a, a civilian hospital taking care of uh, incarcerated patients, what your thoughts were. Actually, I was gonna ask uh, Rebecca and MK whether they're, what their data showed in relation to that, because we certainly thought that patients would present with delay and that some of that delay would be from within the prison system where either there's no nurse on the weekends at their prison, there's nobody to even triage their pain on the weekends, or they're viewed as malingering and just trying to get out of prison and go get you know three hots and a cot in the hospital. Um, but I don't think we found that. No, I think from our own data, sort of locally at, at these two major trauma centers, what we found was that most patients had symptoms for you know, around a day prior to presentation. Unfortunately, during our East study, looking at the same sort of concept of asking people the duration of symptoms prior to presentation, there was a very high rate of missingness. So I, I don't even want to speak to the data that we did have because I, I think it may be inaccurate, but it points to the to the notion that when these patients are being evaluated, it's either not being documented or not being asked how long have you had this? I mean, that's like, that's HPI 101, but it's not, you know, at least wasn't given to us in terms of, you know, our data collection to really answer the question that you asked. There has been a, a publication by a group at Dartmouth who interesting, interestingly looked at California data. And what they found in, in terms of your question was that these individuals who were presenting in this case with emergency general surgery conditions had high rates of complicated presentations, but relatively low rates of surgical intervention. And this points to, you know, one of the first studies that, that we really saw in the literature, which was a, um, just a short letter in JAMA surgery, looking at um, a county in Miami and actually looking at deaths there. 
and looking at um, why um, why people died and incarcerated um, uh, during incarceration. And they looked at medical examiner reports and found that 23% were due to an acute surgical or trauma etiology. And of those patients, only a third of them actually received surgical intervention prior to their death. So I think this would speak to, you know, a couple of different things that, you know, patients are potentially presenting um, later in their, um, in their course and presenting with a higher severity of illness, but that they're not necessarily being operated on like we would expect. And I'll add a complicating factor to that is that um, especially for those of us who work at county hospitals where we have uh, a mix of patients who uh, face disparities or are underserved for a variety of reasons, that in some ways the view may be that the incarcerated patient has a bit more support. And so if they are coming in for an evaluation of a problem that could be treated in follow-up, perhaps you'd be more convinced that they would be able to show up to your uh, clinic for follow-up than some of the other patients who, you know, are unhoused or have other um, mitigating factors that make them more um, at risk for not following up. So I think perhaps it could go both ways. You may be more inclined to treat them on that first visit, or you may be less inclined because you say, well, they'll they'll be going to an infirmary, they can get pain control, and we have a a more, we have an administrative contact that we can really um, try to encourage their follow-up. Although our data suggests that even when we schedule these appointments, um, that uh, they're not being kept a lot of the time. So I think that that is a a takeaway for, for me and I think for other surgeons to know that follow-up, even though we think it may be easier with a person who's in the system, um, is not necessarily uh, easier. I've, I think this is a perfect segue. I've heard you talk before about the privilege of readmission and evaluation, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about your thoughts on that. I worry, like just having seen so many patients who come from correctional systems with advanced presentations of their cancer or their intra-abdominal sepsis or what have you, like I, it, it has left me with so many questions about the triaging process and who ultimately comes to us. And I, I think that like more collaboration and communication with correctional systems is essential for one, like identifying the need and also trying to forge better communications because I, I feel like there are significant difficulties for people who have an operation to, to get back to us for so many reasons. Um, I think that often many correctional systems are, are overburdened getting patients to healthcare and um, you know having two armed guards accompany them, having the specialized transport, having the, the staff and ability to do that. I think that's an issue. I think there are disparate um, healthcare capabilities among correctional facilities in America. Some places that might mean you get to go get seen by a physician. Others, you might get to be seen by a nurse or triaged by a nurse who communicates with the doctor on call. And then I think there's also biases with regard to like, unfortunately, related to things like malingering or secondary gain. But I think, and I think that that's really important as it relates to operations and care we provide and just thinking about how people get back to us, I think it can be really difficult. 
I had a question, an ethics question, um, just to stick on you, Sarah. Um, so the patients come in, they've been diagnosed, we take them to the operating room. Can you walk me through the ethics of not being able to share with the family how the patient did post-op? Because this is just this uncomfortable feeling for me as a surgeon that I leave the operating room and there's, at best, sometimes they go, well, you can call the warden. And that doesn't feel, that feels awkward too. That feels even more awkward than doing nothing. Um, where, where do the families have um, a right to know, or I don't know, walk me through kind of the, the morality and the ethics of that. That's a great question. Um, so I, I think that just before I fully address that, just for the, the listeners, I think that the handling of um, consent, refusal, surrogate decision makers, like who gets to make a decision for an incapacitated incarcerated patient and what is the ability to communicate with friends and family, um, it varies incredibly based on states. Um, I'm currently in a state now where communication is handled um, primarily by the correctional staff who communicate with families um, regarding patients, no matter how ill they are. But in other states I've worked in, communication is more uh, once it's been approved by the correctional system, we're able to, to contact family members or friends or surrogates. And so I, I think that this is really important with regarding uh, upholding patients' autonomy. I think that um, incarcerated patients have their autonomy and freedoms and uh, restricted with regard to many factors, but healthcare, in my opinion, ought not be one of them. And I think that, that many many people would agree with this. And so I think that our, our duty as clinicians in providing patient-centered care to this population is to really advocate and uphold their autonomy. And I think that like knowing the policies at the state level, at the institutional level, going back to and communicating with correctional staff about like how to best kind of facilitate upholding patient preferences and values or family preferences and values with regard to difficult decision-making, I think it's really important. And I think it's our, our professional duty. I think that policy and depending on the state you're in can really influence that. But I think that at the end of the day, while the, the freedoms are often restricted for this population, like we have a duty to provide this healthcare and we have a duty to uphold autonomy with regard to, to healthcare decisions just like to chime in on this because I think one of the things that is the most difficult for me about taking care of incarcerated patients is that when I see people who are incarcerated in my clinic in the prison system I see them in a room just with me and the patient and we can actually have a private conversation um, there are a million correctional officers right outside the door but we have a real doctor-patient relationship and they are able to, once they get back to their own prison, they're able to communicate you know, with some limitations with their family and talk about the medical decisions that we're making together. You know, should you get your hernia fixed? Uh, what's going on with your gallbladder? But once people come to the hospital, they have no ability to call their family. And it is, I have to, ask for permission and for really for very for sort of things that are conventional surgery I won't be given permission to call their family for end of life really serious um, 
issues and surgeries, I will be allowed to call the family, but by and large, the answer will be no. And, and I think often um, when I walk into a, the room of an incarcerated people, person in the hospital, the thing that I feel is their overwhelming isolation. You know, they're in a room, they're not allowed to bring anything to the room. They can't have the pictures or reading material or any of the other stuff that people bring. Obviously they don't have a phone or any of the electronics that all the rest of the patients do. They're just sitting there shackled to a bed with two correctional officers and, and they're alone. So difficult decisions that people with low health literacy have to make are made completely independently, which is, I, for me, really distressing. I think um, just to emphasize a point that you mentioned there, Liz, was um, there's also that big challenge of uh, maintaining private health information. And in the you know relationship you describe when you're actually at uh, your office where you're able to see individuals one-on-one, -on -one, that's very, very different than a lot of our encounters with patients in the hospital. Um, and I think uh, in doing some of this work, uh, I've learned a lot that because these policies vary, a lot of people make assumptions and assume that you have to keep the officers in the room or have to keep the shackles on uh, when in fact, there may be an opportunity to say, you know, please step outside. I'd like to have this private conversation or I'm going to do this part with you outside of the room. Um, and so again, I think it's just an opportunity for people to learn what the policies are in their state and their hospital uh, so that they can be better advocates for maintaining private health information. Absolutely. So much of kind of like the misconceptions surrounding the care really relates to kind of the optics of there's an armed person at the bedside in a uniform and the deference that people often give to the corrections officers. And I think that like my recommendation to surgeons out there is like what you said, Rebecca, like going beyond that, advocating for patients in the spaces that we can asking to take off the shackles in the operating room, asking the corrections officers to step out during um, private examinations or, or things like that. And I think that we have so much more kind of power and influence than we realize. And while it's so easy to be like intimidated by this um, like weird interaction that people aren't comfortable with, like there's so much that, that I, I would urge people to try and do. I think one of the most, um, one of the clinicians that I admire the most caring for this um, population like adamantly requires that shackles be removed and corrections officers be thrown out of the OR and, and wait till um, the gynecologic procedures that she's performing are done. And it's just, she like, like seeing her practice and, and learning from her how to be an advocate in that space was so um, affirming and just like, I'm so grateful to have had that experience. And that was, would be something I'd recommend to others. Well, thank you very much everybody for sharing your experience and your research and your passion for this patient population. I'm glad that we have an East multi-center trial in our literature repository now when anybody searches these search terms. Um, and best of luck for the research that's on the horizon. It sounds like you all are still brimming with ideas that it, it doesn't stop here. Thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, I really appreciate the interest in this because obviously it's a, we think a very important topic. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma.
Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, remember, all you need to do is look to the East.